The Good Reading Podcast is brought to you by Read, the monthly book subscription that pairs a new release book with a pampering gift delivered to your door. There are new books every month and nine genres to choose from. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Read subscription today? Visit luxury.com.au to find out how. We spoke two languages in our family, English and aviation. Spot tests on the pilot's phonetic alphabet could come at any time. W, Dad would ask. Whiskey, we'd call out in response. D, Delta. We had our own small plane for nine years and it never crossed my mind that flying was anything but the most natural way to get from one place to another. Then, in 1993, when I was the ABC's North Queensland reporter, a six-seater plane we'd chartered for work was caught in a heavy storm. While rain was lashing my window, there was a sudden loss of power and the motor on the left spluttered and died. The drop in altitude hit my gut so fast my brain couldn't understand what was happening. The engine on the right revved like mad, trying to keep us airborne. We made it safely to the ground, but I was shaken by the experience. After that, fear began stalking me. It was in the shadows initially, but it slowly became a constant aggressive presence. It culminated when I was covering the Queensland election campaign in 1998 as the state political reporter. We were due to fly on a charter flight with the Premier at the time, Rob Borbidge. I'd been feeling sick about it all day. I drove towards the airport and the skin on my palms grew prickly. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Lisa Miller is a journalist and television news presenter and co-host of ABC TV's News Breakfast program. Lisa has worked as a foreign correspondent for ABC News around the world, including postings as Bureau Chief in London and in Washington, DC. Lisa is also a Walkley Award winner for her investigative reporting. Today, I'm talking with Lisa Miller about her book, Daring to Fly. Lisa, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks for having me. Lisa, how do you get from being part of a family who is totally immersed in aviation to a journalist and foreign correspondent who is literally physically incapacitated at the prospect of boarding a plane? That is a question that my dad used to ask all the time because the family loved flying so much that when I developed my fear of flying, there was a real sadness that I wasn't experiencing the joy that the rest of the family were having. The short answer is I was in an incident midair in North Queensland when I was a young reporter. We'd been rushed down to cover a story at a coal mine in central Queensland. We used to charter planes all the time. It was no big deal, really. And we'd jump on, we'd go film, we'd come back, we'd send the footage to Brisbane. And so this particular time we filmed at the coal mine. And then when we were coming back to Townsville, where I was based, we got caught in a lot of storms. So the pilot was doing his best to try and manoeuvre around the storm cells. It was taking a lot more fuel to do that because he was adding kilometres to his path getting us home. I was in the back with headphones on watching the footage that we had just filmed, trying to isolate what needed to be sent to Brisbane, when suddenly the plane dropped 
and I could see the propeller on the left-hand side had stopped. It spluttered and then stopped. And the propeller next to me, I was on the right in the back, and it I could hear the motor just roaring, trying to keep us up. We didn't know what had happened until much later, in fact. The propeller on the left got going again. We eventually landed. The pilot sort of said, hey, sorry about that up there. And then much later, we discovered that he'd made, well, he'd made a bit of an error by trying to switch from the main fuel tank to a reserve tank midair. But then there was an airlock when he was doing that. And so pretty much the engines were starved of fuel. I thought, okay, that wasn't much fun. But then what happened was over a period of years, I just became more and more fearful. So I went from having this midair incident in a small plane to then not being able to get on a jumbo to go away for my honeymoon without sobbing and accusing my brand new husband, who was about to take me away for two months to Greece, Spain and Italy, of committing the worst crime ever by organising a honeymoon that involved flying. Would you say that your upbringing, your background in aviation and encyclopedic knowledge of aircraft, was that uh, a help or a hindrance to your condition, do you think? What it did was frustrate me because I knew that flying was fundamentally safe. Um, I became Rain Man, as I describe it, of plane accidents and all the details of how a Boeing 737 flies from Brisbane to Sydney only after I developed the fear of flying. So as I was trying to gather that information, I guess the one thing, because Dad learned how to fly late in life, he was in his early 40s, and we had this airstrip uh, on our property in Kilkeven, where I grew up, this small town, I had people in the family who knew how safe flying was. So they would always try and encourage me to get past the fear. But what I learned is that when you have a fear that is so fundamental as that, nothing makes sense. People can say to you, it is perfectly safe to get on a plane and fly from Brisbane to Sydney, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And that's what I've become so much more patient of people with fears because I understand that it's not about just handing them the facts of a situation and expecting them to recover and cure themselves. It's way more complicated than that. So while having my brother who flew, my dad who flew, uh, the, my sisters who loved it, they would say to me, it's fantastic. You should get over this. This is ridiculous. Why are you afraid of flying? Well, that was never going to work. I had to go my own path to try and recover from the fear. Well, daring to fly is about overcoming that fear and finding joy in, in life. It's also a memoir that's populated by a string of pretty amazing people. And your father, Clary Miller, is just one of them. And here's a phrase we don't hear very often, and you touched on it a minute ago. I think we should build an airstrip. What sort of person says that? A person with a big dream. He was a 13-year-old who had to leave school and go and work in a mine in Tasmania. He educated himself. He strove to better himself. He went off to World War II. He married my mum, they had five children. He started farming. He went from being a public servant to being a farmer. He had always wanted to learn how to fly. But before even that happened, he thought, well, 
let's build an airstrip. And so that's what the family did. They mowed the grass. He made my, my older siblings walk along in that fashion where they all sort of held hands and picked up rocks from the ground because just one rock could have been catastrophic to an engine on a small plane. And with great pride, he then looked at this kilometre long grass airstrip in Cookhaven and said, bugger it let's build a cross runway (laughs) and so because you never know what the winds are going to do so i mean he'd been fascinated by flight his entire life and then what a joy for him that he was then able to learn how to fly and then the most incredible joy of all was that his very generous mother-in-law his wife's mum decided to invest in a small piper cherokee and she lived in Brisbane, but I think she was counting on the fact that if she invested in the Piper Cherokee, she might get picked up to come and fly to Kilkeven and see her grandchildren a few times. And this, the person we're talking about is Ida Cooper, and I believe that the plane was even named after her. She's another very interesting character. Did that have any influence on you? Oh, totally. I, I take it as a badge of honour that my family say, you're like grandma because she was an adventurer. She didn't believe that she had to marry young. She wanted to have a life. And so she was in her 30s in the 1930s when she got married for the first time, which was a very big deal. I mean, for a woman back then, that is being left on the shelf, but she never saw it that way. Her new husband ran a plantation in Papua New Guinea. And so off she went to Papua New Guinea with her new husband and had two children. The first, unfortunately, Uncle Thomas had a very difficult birth in Papua New Guinea and his brain was damaged in the um, birthing process. And then mum was born in Sydney a few years after that. Grandma went through periods where there was no money. Um, Her husband died young of uh, cancer. I found some letters in the National Archives, in fact, where just after the war or during the war, Grandma was writing, telling them how broke she was because they'd had to flee the plantation because the Japanese were invading. Her husband had died, so she'd been left a widow with a disabled son and a young daughter. And then there was money later in life for her and she used to travel. She'd get on freighters rather than cruise ships. We'd get postcards back to Kilkeven, the farm at Kilkeven, and she'd be describing the most incredible places that she had visited. And then she, bought the plane and that's when the lives of the Millers really changed. Communication seems to have featured very strongly in your life, whether it's the language of aviation or your father's apparent way with words and then subsequent involvement in politics and even your mother's tenacity and sort of fierce independence. Were these kind of influential on your decision to pursue a career in the media and journalism? Oh, absolutely. When you grow up as a country kid, You don't have many other huge influences on you other than your tight family circle initially. Dad went into politics when I was four. So from the age of four, I saw journalists doing interviews, always men generally in that era with notepads and cigarettes and photographers coming and taking photos. I was a bit fascinated by it. We also, because we grew up in the bush, we had 
the ABC as a choice for our media consumption or one commercial television station, which we weren't allowed to watch very much of because A, there were ads and also mum didn't really approve of most of the programming. (laughs) She would often jump in front of the television set if she thought there was something that her young daughters should not be seeing. But that idea of um, the hearing the ABC News theme and Dad tapping on his plate to say quiet so we all had to listen, it meant that you grew up with this incredible respect. And it's pretty amazing to think that early on I was interviewing members of the family. So there must have been something that was clicking in even at that age. I'd sing the ABC News theme. I'd interview Trudy, I'd interview dad, I'd put on this really deep voice because I thought you had to be a bloke to be able to interview. And then I'd wrap them up or I'd interrupt them. That was the funniest thing. I'd never let them finish a sentence. And, you know, I'm interviewing dad at the age of nine or 10 and we've still got the tape. And I say, okay, Clary, we'll have to wrap it up there. (laughs) I mean, who was I? What kind of kid was I? Throughout your career, you've reported from over 40 countries, covering at times some disturbing, violent or pretty horrific events, Bali bombings, Guantanamo Bay, terrorist attacks in Paris, among others. Many of these experiences must have been intense, even traumatic. How do you manage that sort of trauma? What gets you through? That is something that I have learned more about the longer I've been in the field. And it came about because of one story in particular, and that was when I was sent to Singapore to cover the hanging of Van Nguyen. He was a young Melbourne man who had been convicted of drug trafficking. This was at the end of 2005. I spent two weeks there, mostly hanging outside Changi Prison, waiting for the hanging to occur. There'd been lots of attempts to try and save his life, but it wasn't going to happen. When you're actually in the throes of a job, whether it's a terrorist attack, uh, whether it's an earthquake, I covered the Haiti earthquake when around 120,000 people died, you just get on with the job. You don't have time to process it too much because if you do start processing it at that point, you can find that you then can't continue reporting. I mean, sometimes it's very difficult to put that shield up and protect yourself. In Singapore, I had the shield up. I was protecting myself most of the time. Towards the end of the two weeks, I felt that I was being affected by the story and that this waiting game for Van Nguyen to be killed in such a a brutal way. When I got home from that assignment and I was back in Brisbane, I was driving along the highway heading to work. It was just a few days later. And I turned on the midday radio news, the ABC radio news. And the very first story was a story about his funeral back in Melbourne. And they played Ave Maria, which was the song that the prisoners sang to Van Nguyen as he walked to the gallows. And I just started crying. And then I couldn't stop. And I pulled the car over and I sobbed and sobbed. And I thought, what is wrong with me? And the truth of the matter is I had no idea. I didn't know what was wrong with me. There actually wasn't anything wrong with me. I'd just been very affected by this story. From that point on though, I learned so much more about trauma and about secondary trauma when it's not happening to you, but you are witnessing it. And I also learned then how to 
do my job and extend my career by being able to cope with it, not have breakdowns and all the rest of it. And a lot of that goes, I would have said to Lisa before Singapore, I would have said, hey, you should talk to people who covered previous hangings, like the Barlow and Chambers hanging. You should talk to them a bit more about how they dealt with it. You should make sure you drink plenty of water because Singapore is hot. You should eat properly. You should take breaks. When you come back, we should set up a meeting with a counsellor so you can debrief about what's gone on. But of course, none of that happened. I was surviving on coke and chips outside the prison from the servo across the road. Um, I thought I was bulletproof and I could just barrel through stories like this without being affected. And so that was, I, I think of that moment post-Singapore as being a, an opening of my education for then how to deal with stories. I, of course, at that point had no idea of just how traumatic the stories were going to get, what I was going to cover over the next 15, 16 years that was all to come. Changing tack for a moment, it seems you might also be a bit of a triathlete. Is that something that uh, you've always wanted to do or is it something uh, that forms part of your, let's say, your cure, your ability to go on? What is it for you? Well, it's all to do with the fear. It came from overcoming the fear. So I did an Olympic distance triathlon in Washington, DC. I had to learn how to swim properly. And I did it because I got over my fear of flying. People go, huh, what do you mean? And I said, well, getting over a fear makes you feel so empowered because that fear dominated every decision in my life. It was always there. And once you say, you know what, fear, I am done with you. You are gone. And it, it's totally gone for me. I now look at planes in the sky and think, I wish I was on that plane. Um, so once you've done that, you then think, wow, okay, if I manage to get rid of that fear, what else can I do? What else is out there? And so it came up as a bit of a Oh, I was an experiment, quite frankly, for some friends in Washington who wanted to see if you could take uh, just someone who was, you know, moderately fit, but not particularly, you know, there was no nothing athletic about me at all. If you could take someone like that and turn them into a triathlete in a matter of months. And I was like, yeah, I'll give it a whirl. And so I did. And I did. I crossed the finish line. So it again just reaffirmed that feeling that I have that once you beat a fear of flying, it's empowering. You can do anything. I mean, I honestly had to learn how to swim. I had a coach in Washington, D.C. who he said, show me what you've got. And I splashed down the pool thinking I'm a Queenslander. I can swim. And he, he looked at me and he just said, yeah, I guess we can work with that. <laughs> In Daring to Fly, you're really very open and honest about your life. And Was it a difficult decision to open up in the way you have? And I often wonder in these situations where the line is between privacy and honesty. Mm. It's a really good question. I talked about it with my best friend, Lee Sales, about A, whether I should go down this road of writing a book and B, what should I put in it? Um, she said, look, memoirs aren't worth reading unless the reader thinks that they're going to discover something new that you are opening up for them 
So that was a given. I knew that I had to be very honest about how I was feeling at particular times in my life and what was going on. People see on screen Lisa Miller and the behind the screen Lisa Miller is a different person in that, you know, I have fears and insecurities and, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on and I wanted people to see a bit of that. It was a difficult process, I've got to tell you, because um, for me, I mean, I wrote it through 2020 when I was home alone in Melbourne and we were locked down for most of the year. So I was forced to get inside my brain and think about this. The reason I wanted to do it was because so many people have asked about my fear of flying over the years and they seem to take some encouragement from the fact that I got over it. So I wanted people to feel that if I could do it, they could do it too. So I really hope people take that away from the book. But the process of writing it, talking about mum and dad's deaths, which both happened while I was overseas as a correspondent, and going through something now that so many other people have had to go through, which was to participate in my father's cremation via Zoom from Austria. When that happened three years ago, that was a pretty new concept. Now, of course, so many other families around Australia and the world have had to go through that process. Um, there were a few tears when I was writing. Yeah, there were definitely a few tears, but I'm glad that I was as honest as I have been. No regrets. <laughs> Lisa, it's been great to talk to you and thank you very much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Gregory, great to chat to you. I've been talking with Lisa Miller about her new book, Daring to Fly. It's published by Hachette and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Luxury Read. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Luxury Read subscription today? Visit luxuryread.com.au to find out how.